0: This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church, located in Megwan, Wisconsin. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please visit our website, myabc.church. Last week we began a church-wide journey of studying the Bible from the beginning of it to the end of it. And uh, as a parent, I can say it was nice to know what my kids were looking at that morning. It led to some uh, good conversation at the lunch table that afternoon, and I hope if you have kids that uh, you experience something similar. If if you don't have kids, the ones around here are not off limits to questions. Uh, I give you permission to start with mine, if you'd like, and uh, grab one of them and say, hey, what'd you get out of it this morning? What are you taking away with it? And and I know that for some, there's this unwritten rule out there, students, uh, that you're not supposed to speak until spoken to. That doesn't apply here. You know what the adults looked at. Ask them, what did you get out of the morning? I hope that this uh, journey through the scriptures doesn't end every time we pronounce the benediction on a Sunday morning. Last week we, uh, took a look at Genesis 1, and right out of the gate we get the gist of not just Genesis chapter 1, but the Bible itself. It's ultimately about God. To read the Bible with uh, any other interest, any other primary interest, is ultimately to misread it. Today we move into chapter 2, and God is still in the mode of creating, but there's something different about what He creates in this passage than what He created previous to it. So let me read, and let's find out what that is, starting in chapter 1, verse 26. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. To all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath, the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. There was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. skip over to verse 18. Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The Lord God caused or had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, then closed up the place with flesh. And we're going to consider four aspects to life as it was meant to be this morning. We're going to look at the value of human life, the suitability of male-female marriage, the inherent nature of human dependency. We're going to look at how we can find life the way it was meant to be. Let's look first at the value of human life. So far, God has created galaxies, solar systems, continents, oceans, seas. He's created plants and fruits and vegetation, He's created birds, fish, animals, and then God creates human beings in His image and likeness. This idea of human beings made in the image and likeness of God conveys the idea that we are God's representatives, His vice-regents, mirrors reflecting Him. Uh, This is interesting because in the flow of the text, when God created plants and animals, they were made according to their kinds. You see that phrase repeated again and again, but when he gets to human beings, it's not according to their kinds, it's instead in the image and likeness of God. As God's representatives, as his mirrors, human life possesses a dignity and a sanctity that no other life form has. And I'll be the first to tell you that our world desperately needs to rediscover the transcendent view of the dignity of human life. Melania Capitan was a 27-year-old professional hunter. She was found dead a few weeks ago from apparent suicide after having been bullied by animal rights groups on social media. One animal rights activist posted on social media saying, she's finished the lives of many animals and no one defended the death of them. I think our lives are worth the same as theirs. The statement reflects a deficient view of the dignity, the sanctity of human life. So let me offer four implications of the full dignity of human life. Four implications of the full dignity of human life. Number one is self-image. On one level, it does not matter what a person has done with their life, what kind of track record they have. Every human being reflects God. There is a rock-solid glory and significance about every human being. Our natural impulse, particularly in the developed world, is to assign fluctuating values to human life based on what that life has accomplished. So we consciously or subconsciously assign greater value to the life of an accomplished athlete than the life of the part-time administrative assistant working at your local dentistry. The image of God in every human life ought to obliterate those kinds of categories. Parents and grandparents be careful who you show off for and who you don't. Your kids and grandkids are watching you and they're going to learn to create categories for the value of human life based on how they see you elevating or not elevating certain people. One of the refreshing things about little children is that they haven't learned yet who they should supposedly revere and who they shouldn't. Um, Some of you may know the name Fred Cox. Fred Cox was a field goal kicker for the Minnesota Vikings back in the 1960s and 70s. And apparently he was a family friend of the Danesburgs. Uh, My grandpa knew him somehow. And uh, I have no memory of this story. This has come down to me by those who um, remember. I was probably four or five years old. We were all getting together for a Sunday dinner after church, I think. And uh, Fred was there, my grandparents were there, my parents were there. We all had lunch, and then after lunch, I did what I often do, as a four or five year old boy, I, I wanted to go out and play with a ball. So I asked Fred Cox if he would join me in the backyard to play catch with the football. I tossed it to him, he threw it back to me, at which point I said to him, no, 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 no. That's not how you throw a football. Let me show you how to do this. So I walked over to him. I put my hand on the laces just so. I said, you go like this. Now try it, see if it works. I didn't know who he was. I didn't know it wasn't socially acceptable to show an NFL player how to throw a football. We need more of that. We need more of that. We need more people who are far less impressed with people based on the currency of their profession and far more people impressed with the value of people simply based on the fact that they're image bearers of God. So this has implications for how we see other people, but this also has implications for how we see ourselves because we tend to assign ourselves value based on what we've accomplished or not accomplished, based on what we're doing or not doing. But your career does not add one ounce of value to your self-image. If you want it to, if you want your career to add ounces to your self-image, here's what's going to happen. You're going to crack and break down because God did not design our world for you to find your self-image in what you do. You possess an unchangeable dignity simply because you're a human being second implications implications for how we treat people it ought to change the way the image of God and man ought to change the way we treat those who come across our paths James chapter 3 says this with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness out of the same mouth come praising and cursing my brothers and sisters this should not be James is confronting people in the church who are speaking ill of others, and he's telling them to cut it out. It's not what you do to another image bearer. There are 100,000 image bearers within a 10-mile radius of this church. 100,000 image bearers within a 10-mile radius of this church. When you come across them, I hope you show them respect, reverence, reverence, sacredness, kindness, a concern for them? C.S. Lewis, in his talk, The Weight of Glory, put it this way. He said, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. There are no ordinary people. Your fellow human being is one of the holiest objects presented to your senses. It says implications for how we treat people. Third implication, it says implications for civil rights. Where did the idea of civil rights come from? Some people believe it was a Western invention. I don't know about that. The ancient Romans played an influential role in shaping Western thought, and it was Aristotle himself who said, some people are born, some races are born to be slaves. Can we really say civil rights are a Western ideal? Brian Tierney, who taught at Cornell University, essentially proved in his books the idea that civil rights came from the Bible and were infused into European institutions through the church. I think he's right. We get a hint of it in Genesis 9 when God speaks to Noah. He says, from each human being too, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. What was God saying? He's saying, I'm going to hold you accountable for your treatment of your fellow man. I'll hold you accountable for your treatment of your fellow man, one of Martin Luther King Jr.'s chief motivations for his civil rights work was the Bible. In his sermon entitled "The American Dream," King said this: "There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man, from a treble white to a bass black, is significant on God's keyboard. Precisely because every man is made in the image of God, this is why we must fight segregation with all of our nonviolent might. There are no gradations in the image." of God. King is absolutely right. There are no gradations in the image of God. This applies to race. It also applies to human capacity. Western world is losing this transcendent view of certain human lives. The unborn, those with special needs, the elderly, A few weeks ago CBS reported that close to 100% of expecting mothers in the country of Iceland who receive a positive test for Down Syndrome are terminating their pregnancies. The network tweeted, Iceland is on pace to virtually eliminate Down Syndrome through abortion. Actress Patricia Heaton from Everybody Loves Raymond fame took to Twitter with a reply saying, Iceland isn't actually eliminating Down Syndrome, they're just killing everybody that has it. Big difference. When I think about some of these issues, racism, abortion, other injustices, I wonder what it would be like to live in a community where every human life, regarded every other human life as sacred, regardless of race, stage of development, or capacity. This is the way life was meant to be. The image of God and man ought also to influence how we oppose people now we are right to oppose those views that are an assault on the image of God but pay attention to how we do that because in opposing them we are opposing image bearers how we oppose them matters because we can inadvertently assault the image of God in our opposition it's self-defeating in opposing abortion, we can actually assault the image of the one who agrees with that. Tactics matter, and our tactics need to mirror the grace and truth tactics of Jesus Christ. I don't know how deeply you've processed this, but I've gone round and round and round about How, how do you oppose things like this in a manner that doesn't compromise the way in which you're opposing it? How do you do that? I keep coming back to the fact that grace and truth simultaneously, in equal proportion, is the only way we can oppose injustice in a manner that itself doesn't become unjust. We have to keep this in mind as we come alongside people in the church who have firsthand experience with or participation in some of these injustices. There are people in our churches who have been racists, there are people in our churches who have been complicit or active in abortions. They are image bearers. How we come alongside them as they process their past views and behaviors is a real indicator of to what extent we truly view human beings as image bearers of God. We grow in this, as a church, and set an example for our community. God has such a lofty vision of human life. And He's calling us up to it. This is the way life was meant to be. Second, the suitability of male-female marriage. The only time God looks at what he has made and declares something to be not good is when Adam is alone. Now, the pronouncement is not just pointing out something that's not good. It's actually stronger than that. The pronouncement is that there is a substantial deficiency here. Adam without Eve isn't just the absence of something good. Adam without Eve is a substantial deficiency. So Eve is not the icing on the cake. She's the missing key ingredient that makes cake, cake. And in making this declaration, God does not consult with Adam. It's not as though they finished, and then God and Adam huddled up together to evaluate all that had taken place, and they both mutually come to the conclusion that Adam is missing something, that he's got a substantial deficiency in his life. No, this is all God. Adam may not have even been aware of his need, which may explain the long history of male cluelessness. (laughs) This is God's unilateral assessment. That's important. It's his unilateral assessment. He says this isn't good. So what does he do? He says in the text, I will make a helper suitable for him. Literally a helper opposite him. Now helper is not a diminishing or servile term. It's used of God himself. Many times in the Old Testament scripture, Psalm 20, Psalm 121, Psalm 124, God is portrayed as Israel's helper in coming to Israel's aid against their enemies. In Exodus 18, Moses refers to God as his helper who delivered him from Pharaoh. So this term provides no fuel whatsoever for the misogynist. As his matching opposite, Eve would supply what is lacking in Adam. Now how God created Eve is intriguing as well. He does not form her ex nihilo out of nothing. He takes a rib from Adam. She's made from the same flesh, same bones, same DNA. So the way in which God forms her from Adam lays the foundation for their equality. Now when you think about God's command to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, it becomes apparent that Eve is equally necessary for this to occur. They may have different roles in this stuff, but their different roles are equally necessary. This is one of the helpful contributions of early feminism. Early feminism pointed out that feminine qualities, quote unquote, are just as necessary and helpful for human flourishing as male qualities. That's not new insight. It's all there in Genesis 1 and 2. Now Adam's reaction to seeing his wife for the first time is striking. In verse 23 he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Husbands, do you know what this is? (laughs) This is a poetic song of celebration. It is bona fide, legit Hebrew poetry. Adam is the first romantic. He sees his wife it's as if it all clicks. He responds to the sight of her by bursting into a poetic song of celebration. And he's challenging husbands everywhere to up their games here. He sees her and it's as if he knows, yes, my substantial deficiency is whole, I'm complete. She is supplying what he's lacking. That concept is illustrated so well with the story of an elderly couple who walked into a fast-food restaurant. They, uh, they placed an order for one hamburger, one order of fries, one drink, went to sit down and the old man unwraps this hamburger, he carefully cuts it in half, he places one half in front of his wife, and he counts out the fries, dividing them into two piles. Neatly placing one in front of his wife, he takes a sip of the drink, she takes a sip of the drink, they set the cup down in between them, and then she begins eating her meal. All the while, people around them are looking at this unfold and they're whispering to themselves that poor old couple, all they can afford is one meal for the two of them. As the woman eats her fries and eats her burger, a young man comes to their table and politely offers to buy them another meal. And the old woman replies saying that they're fine, they're used to sharing everything. Surrounding people notice that the man has not eaten a single bite of his part of this meal, so the young man, just moved by this whole thing, comes back to them and begs them to let him buy them another meal. This time the old man pipes up and says, no thank you, we're used to sharing everything. As the old woman finishes, and she's wiping her face neatly with the napkin, the young man comes over again to the, to the old man who had yet to take us a single bite of his food, and he asks him, sir, may I ask, what is it you're waiting for? And the old man answers, the teeth. <laughs> what a beautiful picture. That's what God had in mind. Eve would supply what is lacking. No wonder Adam burst into a song of celebration. There's one other thing I want to point out in creating Eve the way he did, that God continued the theme of opposite but complementary pairs. I mentioned this last week, opposite but complementary pairs are a design principle intrinsic to God's creation. So you have light and darkness coupled together, heavens and the earth coupled together, land and the sea coupled together, now male and female are brought together by God's good design. This is the way life was meant to be. Third aspect to life the way it was meant to be is the inherent nature of human dependency. Adam and Eve weren't created with an automated system of knowing what to do with the life God had made for them. They were not pre-programmed robots who could automatically live life the way it was meant to be lived. God speaks to them. He gives them instructions on, on how to make the most of the life the way it was meant to be. Look at this list of instructions God gives them. He says to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion, you shall have them, that is, green plants for food, animals shall have them, that is, green plants for food, eat of every tree in the garden except for one. They were not created already knowing this. They needed instruction from God. God. In other words, they were built, they were created with this built-in dependence upon God's instruction. In order for them to experience life the way it was meant to be, they needed to listen attentively to what God had to say to them about how this thing was going to operate, and then they needed to obey. What's striking about this is that Adam and Eve are still perfect. They've not succumbed to sin. This is a perfect world. And yet even in perfection, they were created with a built-in dependency on God speaking to them, them listening and obeying. If they needed that in their perfect state, how much more do we in our fallen, corrupted, sinful state? The The society, the culture around us has a very different message. What the culture screams at us is, look, if you're going to experience life the way it was meant to be, you have to throw off, you have to cast aside divine authority, put your flag in the ground, and claim your own personal autonomy. We're gonna look at this next week, but our enemy has duped people into thinking their dreams come true this way by presenting the bait and hiding the hook, Satan catches his limit every day. The route to experiencing life the way it was meant to be runs right through the middle of God's authoritative word to us. There's no detour that lands you there. Fourth and finally, how do we find this life? Life the way it was meant to be. How do we find it? Genesis one, starting in verse thirty-one. God saw all that He had made, and it was very good. Literally in the Hebrew language, it's good, good. Hebrew's way of providing emphasis upon something. It will repeat the same word, good, good. This is exceedingly good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work He had been doing, so on the seventh day He rested from all His work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it He rested from all the work of creating that He had done. Now what's going on here? What's up with God resting? Well, He's not resting because He's tired. The Bible makes it clear God doesn't get tired. Now, to rest is a statement of completion. Everything is the way it should be. The work is done. This is what it means to rest. Everything is the way it's supposed to be. God takes a step back. He looks at it all and he says, yes, everything is the way it's supposed to be. I don't know a lot about you, but I know you long for that. I know you have a deep longing To be able to say of your life and the world, everything is the way it's supposed to be. I know you long for that. In other words, you long for rest, to be able to take a step back in your life, your marriage, your home, our world, and be able to honestly say everything is the way it should be. You long for rest. Here's the problem. We never get there, do we? How often do you take a step back in your own life and be able to say of it all, yes, everything is the way it's supposed to be? Ever? And we can't get to our rest the way God did. How did God get to his rest? Well, he made everything perfectly. Go ahead. Knock yourself out. We're not God, we strive to. We strive to get to that place where we can say everything is the way it's supposed to be. We strive for that. We strive to treat other human beings with the dignity they deserve, but we fail daily at that. We strive to live in our marriages the way God crafted them to be. Well, we come up short. We strive to take God's word seriously and obey them, but we don't. So if you're going to find rest, it's gotta come some other way. How are you gonna find rest? Jesus offers it to us. Matthew 11, Jesus says, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The rest is this experienced state of everything is as it should be. And Jesus is saying, we can get a taste of that now. But it doesn't come through our moral or spiritual performance. The text says, Jesus gives rest to those who come to him. At times, you're going to fail at valuing human life the way you're supposed to. And it's gonna gnaw at you. And it's gonna prevent you from experiencing rest. But Jesus valued human life perfectly. And the beauty of the Gospel is that when you come to Jesus, He imparts His righteousness to us. That is, when we put our faith, our trust, our allegiance in Christ, we get credit for the perfect track record Jesus had of valuing human life the way it was supposed to be valued. When we come to Jesus, God no longer sees your failures. He sees his son's successes. When you come to Jesus, you get credit for something you don't deserve. That's grace. And whether you came to Jesus a long time ago or last week Preaching this message of grace to yourself daily is necessary if you're going to experience any shred of life the way it was meant to be. Jesus is saying, come to me if you want rest. Come to him if you want rest. If you want to experience any shred of life the way it was meant to be, Jesus is inviting you, come to him. That's the route. To rest. The rest that Jesus talks about here in Matthew 11, certainly, to, agree, to a degree, promises that in this life, we can experience life the way it was meant to be, to a degree. But the rest that he's talking about is undoubtedly a future rest as well. There is going to come, for those who are in Christ, for those who have come to Jesus, there's going to come a day, there is going to come a day when Jesus brings with him the rest that you long for. It's a day in our future yet. When Jesus comes back, he will bring with him the rest your soul longs for. And on that day, every one of us is going to be able to take a step back Take a deep breath, look at it all, and finally be able to say, yes, everything is the way it's supposed to be. You long for that day? Let's pray. Gracious God, you have visibly and powerfully shown us how much you value human life. You sent your only son into our world to take upon himself the penalty for our failure to love you and each other as we ought. So God, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts the magnitude of your love for us so we can respond in grace and love towards our fellow man. And God, every one of us in this room longs for rest, to be able to say everything is the way it's supposed to be. And in your word to us, you've given us the route to that. Your son invites us to come to him because he's the one who gives rest. So I pray that we all would do that. That we would come to your son Jesus to rest in the life he lived and the death he died for us. That we can leave here spiritually rejuvenated by the beauty of your love for us. Give us rest, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen.